The nuclear industry likes to claim that living near a nuclear power reactor is perfectly safe, that there is no danger because the annual exposure rate to radiation is too small to count. But then you learn of a European-based compilation of studies that revealed the risks, especially to small children, of developing leukemia as a result of living close to a nuclear reactor. And the man who crunched the data tells you... With childhood leukemias, it's always led me to be more and more sure that uh, my initial premise was right. For that reason, I'm quite happy about sticking close to the evidence because that evidence really does show that there are increased leukemias near nuclear reactors. Well, when you hear something like that from an impeccable international expert like Dr. Ian Fairley, you know that you are sitting in a seat that all of us share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we take a close-up look at the work of Dr. Ian Fairley. He published an article in 2014 that correlated more than 60, 60 separate international studies about health risks to small children living within five kilometers, that's about three miles, of nuclear reactors. He not only reveals the results of that study, but explains why the greatest danger from nuclear reactors comes in a very short period of time and how the nuclear industry intentionally kept that information from the public. We will also have nuclear news from around the world. Linda Pence Gunter with the Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story, Numbnuts of the Week for Outstanding Nuclear Boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than we have yet heard from Britain's King Charles III. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, September 27, 2022, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. In news from Florida, Hurricane Ian has grown from Category 3 to 4 and is verging on a 5 as it bears down on the West Florida coast, centering on Fort Myers. No word about its impact on nuclear sites in Florida, but flash floods are possible across the entire state. Hazards include the polluted leftovers of Florida's phosphate fertilizer mining industry, more than 1 billion tons of what they are labeling as slightly radioactive waste contained in enormous ponds that could overflow in the heavy rains. Also with the potential to be impacted are the Nuclear Point single reactor site near Miami, the two reactors at St. Lucie on Florida's east coast, and the closed but still containing spent fuel pool facility at Crystal River, north of Tampa. In Ukraine, 
There was another missile strike on the Zaporizhia nuclear reactor site. The International Atomic Energy Agency has put forth a proposal for a Ukraine nuclear safety and security protection zone around the five reactor site in southern Ukraine, which is still controlled by the Russians. The proposal is receiving strong international report, and while talks with major powers have commenced in New York City, neither Russia nor Ukraine is in attendance. Those two countries will be addressed individually and independent of each other. Some good news out of Ukraine regarding Zaporizhia. Energoatom, the Ukrainian state nuclear agency, reports that a 25-truck shipment of the most necessary spare parts, materials, and diesel fuel destined for Zaporizhia has reached the reactor's host city of Energodar. In verbal volleys, Russian President Vladimir Putin raises the nuclear threat, saying, I want to remind you that our country has different types of weapons as well, and some of them are more modern than the weapons NATO countries have and threatened to escalate the war if his warning strikes, that's what he called them, on Ukrainian infrastructure were not taken seriously. Many experts believe that a stubborn Putin, cornered on the ground and whose authority is increasingly questioned at home, is more likely to be willing to reaffirm and use all his power, including nuclear. In response, the United States has warned Russia that there will be, quote, catastrophic consequences if it uses nuclear weapons after setbacks in its war in Ukraine. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, in an interview with CBS News 60 Minutes, said, It's very important that Moscow hear from us and know that the consequences would be horrific. To which Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said, I don't believe he's bluffing. He wants to scare the whole world. These are the first steps of his nuclear blackmail. And for those of you who might need some help visualizing, we will be posting a map that shows how Europe could be affected if Ukraine's nuclear power plant Zaporizhia blows up. Check for it at NuclearHotSeat.com under this episode, number 588. Greenpeace is going to sue the European Union for what they call gas and nuclear greenwashing saying that the inclusion of gas and nuclear in a European Union list of green investments violates European climate law. The EU's executive arm, the European Commission, has until February of 2023 to respond to Greenpeace's arguments. And Greenpeace says that if the Commission does not agree to disinclude gas and nuclear from its list of sustainable investments, it will take the case to the European Court of Justice. So why do we have nukes in the first place? That brings us to this week's hot story with Linda Pence-Gunter. As I record this on September 26, it is the International Day for the Total Elimination of Nuclear Weapons. The occasion prompted UN General Secretary Antonio Guterres to say unequivocally, eliminating nuclear weapons would be the greatest gift we could bestow on future generations. Members of the Nobel Peace Prize-winning International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, known by its acronym ICANN, reminded us that with the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, we are changing the future. That treaty just garnered five more signatory countries, and two more ratified it, bringing the total number of signatories to 91, and states' parties to 68. But in my email inbox this week is a reminder that the next Nuclear Deterrence Summit will be coming up in February, and I should grab my discounted ticket now. 
I went to this summit once. It was a depressing banqueting room packed full of people who could talk about nuclear weapons in the same way a plumber might discuss his tool bag. Nuclear weapons were useful and essential. We should repair the old ones. We should not lag behind the Russians. It was like falling into a Cold War time warp. The disconnect between the technological and numerical aspects of these weapons and what they actually do to people was chilling. Compared to the compassionate, peace-loving nuclear abolitionists we are usually around, it was like encountering a different species. I think it's safe to say that most of those delegates had never met, let alone dialogued with, someone who has had direct experience with the actual use of a nuclear weapon. And those who have suffered go well beyond the Habaksha, who survived the horrors of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings. Countless people were victims of the decades of atomic testing, civilians as well as military personnel. Their stories are living testaments to the horrors, not only of the moment of detonation of an atomic bomb, but the lingering aftermath, the devastating health impacts and the persistent environmental poisoning of their land and water. I have met and interviewed several atomic test survivors and often their misfortunes have turned them into impassioned campaigners for justice. One such is Hinamura Cross, who I encountered at the ICANN conference in Vienna last June. Hinamura, who is from Tahiti, is still a young woman, so her story was a nightmarish reminder that the French atomic tests in the South Pacific did not end until 1996. She has leukemia, diagnosed when she was just 24, and all of the women in her immediate family have suffered cancer. But when she first described her illness to the testing, she said she was viewed by her own country people as a crackpot. Once she was welcomed into the ICANN family, she felt safe and emboldened. There is one hospital and two clinics on Tahiti, something Hinamura sees as an outrage. Consequently, many victims have had to travel to Paris to get treatment. And yet the French government has decreed that French Polynesia must bear the cost of treatment for atomic test victims. Hinamura is carrying on the work of the late Bruno Barriot to try to get compensation for the victims of French atomic testing. You can read her story this week on Beyond Nuclear International. Hers is just one of hundreds of similar stories of nuclear countries exploding their atomic bombs on faraway lands, sickening the people there and the environment and even their own troops, and then walking away from the responsibility while still today pushing the continued possession of nuclear weapons and even their expansion. September 26 is just one day to urge for the total elimination of nuclear weapons but we must keep doing that every day. I am Linda Pence-Gunter with Beyond Nuclear, reporting for Nuclear Hot Seat. And that's this week's hot story. As always, our thanks to Linda Pence-Gunter. Catching up with international news, Sweden's four-reactor Forsmark nuclear reactor facility experienced a power outage around noon on January 25, 2022. As the power failed, so did two of the plant's four emergency backup generators, throwing the plant's control room into a state of chaos. It took a full 23 minutes before workers were able to bring Forest Mark 1 back under control. Greenpeace wrote that the events at Forest Mark were comparable to a ghost ship with nobody at the rudder. And the Swedish Environment Ministry described the event as a serious safety incident with Lars Olaf Hoagland, who served as chief of construction for Vattenfall, the Swedish-owned international power company, 
said simply, it was pure luck that there was not a meltdown. It was the worst incident since Chernobyl and Harrisburg, referencing the 1979 meltdown at the Three Mile Island facility in Pennsylvania. And now for some evil nuclear boneheadedness. Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that sound a week. If you are Australia, and you want to convince that country that it's acceptable to establish not just a national nuclear waste dump, but an international dump site that would potentially accept nuclear waste from the United Kingdom and France, where do you go and what do you do? Well, you do what Australia did. You hire a PR lobbying firm, Australian Public Affairs Party Limited. The company advertises itself by saying, We help clients maximize competitiveness by driving change or protecting the status quo, anticipating and managing risks or issues, and by protecting or repositioning reputation. In other words, lying through their teeth, ignoring any negative consequences, and just taking the money and running as fast as they can. The requirements of the job? Advocate for a radioactive waste facility being built in the middle of one of Australia's largest wheat and agricultural belts. Urge locals to support a nuclear waste dump near Kimba, despite the site neighboring both a conservation park and a national park. Avoid publicly questioning why the company the federal government hired to assess the shortlisted dump sites has a United States parent company that manufactures nuclear weapons. But make sure to tell the locals it will be worth it because the nuclear waste dump will bring 45 jobs. Among other points to be ignored while communicating with the public, never state that traditional owners have already been subjected to decades of trauma thanks to the nuclear industry and materials for nuclear weapons being sourced from their lands. Ignore the damaging mining conducted at Radium Hill, the uranium mining that continues to this day. The grotesque takeover of land to establish a weapons testing range double the size of England. And the hideous government decision to allow Britain to test seven atomic bombs at Maralinga and Emu Field without adequately warning the indigenous people living there. And if you need your daily dose of irony, we're made using uranium sourced from Radium Hill. Australian Public Affairs has been working behind the scenes for the federal government for the past seven years, providing media and campaign strategy advice to help the government promote the nuclear waste dump and steer them through what continues to be a long, flawed, and troubled dump site selection process. Activists have said that dump would poison the water and poison everything, the food, the cattle, and everything else that's going to live off the water. But hey... There's money to be made, there's a public to be hornswoggled, there's an agenda to be pushed forward, and nobody cares about people or the environment. And that's why Australian Public Affairs Party Limited and all the minions who work for you, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that sound a week. In Switzerland, That country's quote-unquote experts have announced a planned site for the Swiss nuclear waste repository near the border to Baden-Baden-Württemberg, not far from Hohentangen in Germany. Swiss spokespersons said the decision for the repository site was purely geological and, quote, it's a clear decision. The geology has spoken. 
But we haven't yet heard from the Germans. The impact on local German communities has the populace skeptical and are requesting further tests. To possibly sweeten the deal, the Swiss were approached with the question of whether German radioactive waste could also be disposed of in the repository, given that it is so close to the German border. And the Swiss responded with an unequivocal no. I'm sure we'll hear more about this. Also in Germany, a leak at the ISAR-2 nuclear power plant has not compromised security, but could complicate the government's winter energy plan. ISAR-2, in the southern state of Bavaria, had been scheduled to go offline at the end of the year under Germany's plan to phase out all nuclear power. But the war in Ukraine and the subsequent plunge in energy exports from Russia prompted a policy change with Berlin now planning to keep two of Germany's three remaining nuclear reactors, including ISAR-2, on standby into next year. In France, half of that country's 56 nuclear reactors are currently offline, many due to safety problems. Energy generation from nuclear power plants has dropped to a 30-year low. The French power utility, EDF, which is responsible for the nuclear utilities, is currently 42 billion euros in debt. And the company is facing unresolved waste and decommissioning problems that will require between 50 and 100 billion euros to retrofit. To speed up repairs to the nuclear reactors, some contractors helping the French power giant EDF to inspect and repair its corrosion-hit nuclear reactors are planning to relax their rules on radiation exposure limits so that their workers can spend more time on the job and in the radiation. Doesn't exactly inspire confidence in EDF, and that's the company the UK wants to build its new nuclear reactors. We'll see how much further that goes. In Japan, petitions with 40,000 signatures were submitted to TEPCO and the Ministry of Economy, Trade, and Industry, opposing the release of the radioactive tritium-contaminated water from Fukushima Daiichi. The signatures were collected by consumer cooperatives in Iwate, Miyagi, and Fukushima prefectures, and Miyagi fishing cooperatives. The Chinese Foreign Ministry agrees, calling on Japan to stop this dump of Fukushima radioactive water into the Pacific, saying the sea is not Japan's dustbin, nor is the Pacific Ocean its sewer. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment, but first, happy birthday to me. Yep, on Thursday, September 29, I reached the age of... And what I really want is a world without nukes weapons, reactors, waste, and all the radioactive mess that comes with it. You don't even have to gift wrap it. I'll take it however it comes. Deal? Well, it would be nice if wishing for a nuke-free world would make it happen, but it won't. From uranium mining on mostly indigenous lands that leaves a legacy of unremediated radioactive tailings, to nuclear weapons and reactor fuel manufacture, to the known health dangers of living near a nuclear reactor, We'll hear more about that in this week's interview. To the forever legacy of so-called spent fuel rods, all of it is supported by a financially well-funded nuclear industry, PR propaganda push, that spends more at lobbying lunches with legislators than, well, the annual operating budget of nuclear hot seat. And that's why we need your support. So how about helping celebrate my birthday with a donation to nuclear hot seat? Buy us a cup of coffee, $5. 
or make it a recurring donation, $5 a month or more. We're now in our 12th year, and Nuclear Hot Seat is the only podcast where you can reliably get a one-hour hit of honest nuclear information every week. So if you've come to value what it is we do and would like to support the show's work going forward, the time to help us with a donation is right now. Any and every amount helps, and we make it easy for you. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com, click on the red Donate button, follow the prompts, You can do it with a credit card if you don't want to do it through PayPal. And donate what you can now, knowing that however much you help, I am deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now, here's this week's featured interview. Over the past weekend, I attended a three-day non-nuclear event. Yes, such things do exist. As a result, I know that I have a lot of new listeners So here's a Cornerstone interview from 2014 with Dr. Ian Fairley. He is a UK-based Canadian consultant on radiation in the environment and a former member of the three-person secretariat to Britain's committee examining the radiation risks of internal emitters. Ian is a radiation biologist who has focused on the radiological hazards of nuclear fuel, and studied radioactive releases at nuclear facilities since before the Chernobyl accident in 1986. In 2014, the date of this interview, he published a scientific paper that blew the lid off the nuclear industry's claim that living near a reactor is perfectly safe. He also shows how the industry's standard operating procedures kept that information from the public until 2012. Please note, with my apologies, that at one point near the beginning of our talk, Skype became more Skypish than usual, and there's an echo on the line. I've edited it out as best I can, and if you bear with it through that brief bumpy zone, the problem eventually resolves. Trust that the information is well worth it. Ian Fairley, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. It's my pleasure to be here. Let's start out with giving people an idea of your background. My main degree is in radiation biology. In other words, uh, the effects of radiation on cells and tissues. Before that, I was a chemist at the University of Western Ontario in Canada. My postgraduate studies were in how best to deal with radioactive waste. And that was at Imperial College here in London. After that, I entered the civil service and uh, worked for the Department of Environment in the UK government for about 10 years, I suppose. And after that, I retired. But during my previous, uh, shall we say, life, before I started studying radiation biology, I actually worked for Greenpeace Canada as um, an advisor, a science advisor to them on their various campaigns. So... You could say I've had a fairly rounded set of experience in, in terms of both an academic and a civil servant and also a Greenpeace campaigner. It seems that scientists like to consider themselves outside of politics, at least when they are putting forward the information that they do. Do you consider yourself anti-nuclear as a political stance? Yes. Basically what it is is that a long time ago I became fairly certain that the increased leukemias that we see in the near nuclear power stations 
came from their discharges, and I thought that it was unconscionable, just totally wrong for kitty winkers, the little kids, to be dying from leukemia because of us generating electricity. There's lots of other ways of generating electricity. And I suppose fair to say that I'm, I'm not really very much in favor of nuclear power. But having said that, I'm also a scientist. And for scientists, the most important thing is to stick close to the evidence. In other words, if the evidence points in a certain direction, then check the evidence. Make sure it's the best evidence. And if that means you have to change your views, so be it. But with childhood leukemias, it's always led me to be more and more sure that uh, my initial premise was right. Um, so for that reason, I'm quite happy about being in and sticking close to the evidence, because that evidence really does show that there are increased leukemias near nuclear reactors. To be clear, you did not do a study on the childhood leukemias showing up around nuclear power plants, but you did compile existing studies and existing statistics. How extensive were those, and what led you to take this particular approach? Well, to actually carry out an epidemiological study takes a lot of time and a lot of money, and you have to have access to a lot of data. And oftentimes that data, data is proprietary, and you can't get it yourself. You have to rely on other people getting it and giving it to you. On the other hand, there were over 60 studies worldwide on this particular issue of childhood leukemias near nuclear power plants. And that, in itself, provided uh, enough data for me to do my work properly. And 60 studies is a lot of studies, and there was a lot of data in those studies. And so that was by far the best thing to do, was to mine the existing data rather than actually carrying out a study from de novo, so to speak, using new data. Explain to us the extent of the danger that you discovered in doing this compilation of existing research. By the way, I should say that I, I collaborated in a lot of this with a, a German scientist called Dr. Alfred Kerblein, and he will crop up a lot of, in my work. What we found when we were doing this work together was, first of all, the large number of studies. I mean, 60 studies worldwide. In toxicology, this is probably one of the biggest areas that's ever been studied. For example, if you were to look at asbestos or chemicals or lead, poisoning or anything like that, there's nowhere near 60 studies on health effects from particular plants. So this, this is a very large number. The second thing is that we could do what are called meta-analysis. In other words, what you do is you, by careful examination of the data, you can add the data together. You've got to be sure that you're adding oranges to oranges and not apples and oranges, but you can do it. And when we've done that, you can get meta-analysis. Other people have done the same, by the way, and they all come up with the same answer, and that is that there are increased leukemias near the power stations. The thing is, it's beyond doubt. There's a very clear pattern of raised childhood leukemias near nuclear power station. There was one aspect in the article that you did cite where you combined the statistics 
apparently mm-hmm. oranges to oranges, for Germany, Great Britain, Switzerland, and France into a single table. I was struck by the fact that what you came up with was 37% increase in childhood leukemias within five kilometers, which is about three miles from almost all nuclear power plants in these countries. That's right. Why had no one thought to compile these statistics before? And how alarming is this to you as a result that came from this? Well, the first thing is that the four governments, the scientists in those governments obviously knew that this was going on, and they obviously knew that each of the four countries were doing this. Um, It's an obvious step for the data and the four studies to be added together, and I'm absolutely positive that the scientists, the relevant scientists in the four countries did it. In fact, we know them, and we know they did it, but they didn't publish the data. We did, and Dr. Corbin and I, we did it together. Very statistically significant uh, increases in childhood leukemias near all the reactors in those four countries. Not quite all the reactors. In France, there was only about uh, two-thirds of the reactors, but pretty well all of the reactors in the four countries. What conclusions can be drawn, or did you draw, from the compilation that you put together? Well, it was quite clear that there was an increase. It was beyond the bounds of chance. This wasn't a fluke finding. This meant that it was clear that there were increases near NPPs and that we had to move on to the reasons for that and the energy policy consideration. When did you start this? The actual study itself was commissioned by the organizers of a conference in the UK in 2012. And myself and many other contributors uh, to the conference, all their proceedings, all the proceedings of the conference were going to be published in a journal. The problem was that my article or my talk was very controversial. It resulted in a lot of delay in the peer review process. And as a result of that, the, the proceedings of the conference delayed by about two years. I understand that there was one scientist who shall remain nameless who challenged you repeatedly and extensively. Would you talk about what that was like for you and also how you responded to the various challenges that you received? The person concerned that I have known for many years. He's a, a worthy adversary, shall we say. I have a lot of respect for his work, Palina. Um, he's a good scientist, but we have different views about nuclear power. And it was a real tussle, shall we say. A long, drawn-out, gladiatorial battle. But it was on the basis of science, and we argued the toss about scientific evidence. And that took a long time. Over many pages of paper and many, many points. The editor of the journal, he was very good. He had to be a neutral referee in this, but he, he was well informed. He knew about the issues and he knew what to allow, what not to allow. And so my congratulations go to him. A lot of other people would have ducked out on this and he saw it right through. And in the end, he published it. And his reward is that as a result of the publication, within about two or three months, um, about 500 people downloaded it, which 
in this, shall I say, uh, narrow subject area, is a lot of downloads. It's, um, it's gone viral, or partly viral. A good chunk of the readership of the Journal of Environmental Radioactivity must have downloaded the, the article. And for the editor, that is very heartening, because that means he struck a chord, and people are picking up on what he's published. So he was very happy indeed. There is one other thing I should mention, and that is that I, I waited for about three months after the publication before I went onto the web and with my own blog on this. And that is to give time to readers to point out any errors or omissions or bits for a better wall or whatever they be in the article. And to date, touch wood, there haven't been any at all. So that's given me a lot of confidence in the sense that even although I can imagine a lot of readers will be find this difficult to take, they haven't come up with anything which has sunk me below the waterline, so to speak. A shell hasn't landed below the waterline or anything like that. In fact, there haven't been any shells. So it's, uh, I'm quite pleased with that. And I'm relatively confident um, with the hypothesis now. It seems that the extensive challenges that you went through with your worthy scientific opponent helped you vet the article to the point where nobody could pick anything apart with it. How accurate would that be? <laughs> that would be very true. Yes, you're right. The fact that the, the peer review process was so tough basically meant that the article itself was pretty watertight. Now that we have this watertight article that correlates raised leukemia rates in children with proximity to nuclear power plants. What impact has what you've written had on public awareness in the media and on governmental policy? Well, it's really hard to say. Uh, what I do know is that amongst my colleagues and friends here in the UK and in Germany, they've more or less taken this on board and it's now accepted certainly in the environmental community, that this is a serious matter that has to be taken on board. And that building nuclear power stations really is very problematic now. As far as governments are concerned, now they deny it all the way. It's very difficult for them that they've decided that they're going down the nuclear line to find this evidence which directly contradicts it. They reject the evidence, unfortunately. What do you think is going to happen here in the United States as more and more people become aware of this article and have the opportunity to read it? That's a good question. In the United States right now, the National Research Council is about to embark on a big study of childhood cancers near U.S. reactors. And this is going to be quite important. There's about 100 reactors in the United States, and if you get data for all those 100, that's going to be a fairly powerful study. Now, what this study that I've uh, produced says is that in the rest of the world, the evidence is crystal clear. There are increased leukemias near nuclear plant. So I'm pretty sure that government scientists in the United States will have read the article. Indeed, Given that the fact that there's been so many downloads, and my the consultant that looks after my, my website says oh, uh, a good chunk of those, like about half, are from the United States, that means 
that the scientists who can in the United States may know about the study for sure. So that, say, 200, 300 scientists in the United States have downloaded this and have read it, they must be aware uh, in government circles of this article, and it must figure somehow or other in their thinking. I'm not sure whether they will like the article in the sense that it's bad news for them, particularly in the Department of Energy in the United States, but nevertheless, the evidence is there. There is one other thing, and that is that the United States Environmental Protection Agency is consulting on proposals to relax the limits for radiation doses from U.S. nuclear power stations. This study flies right in the face of that. It says, if anything, it should be the other way around. It should be tightening, not relaxing radiation limits near U.S. reactors. So there's two things going on in the United States right now. Both of them are addressed by my article, and it's difficult for me to predict what's actually going to happen. I have a number of friends in the United States, quite a few in fact, and they have said to me that they are surprised and amazed at the findings in my study. They say that it has clear implications for what's going on in the United States. So my reaction would be, while the jury's still out, watch this space. Let's see what happens. To what extent do you think it would be possible for the U.S. to put together a study this massive and somehow come up with different results than what you came up with in examining 60 other studies? Well, the first thing is that if they do what we did, in other words, we restricted this to children under five, and also the exposure area to less than five kilometers, i.e. under three miles, it would be extremely surprising if they found out found anything different than we found. The reactors that we're talking about are the similar reactors to the United States, but, uh, pressurized water reactors and boiling water reactors. So it would be very difficult. One of the key things I'd like to mention to your uh, listeners is this. Up until 2012, we didn't really know what happened with emissions from nuclear reactors. The only data that we had was annual data. So many becquerels or petabecquerels or gigabecquerels per annum from a reactor. We didn't really know the time pattern. Now we do. Now we know that the large majority, say two-thirds, three-quarters, of the annual emissions from a reactor occur just once during one spike. And that spike occurs when the reactor is opened up to take out the old fuel and to put in fresh fuel. And during that time period, about a day, day and a half, the reactors are depressurized. In other words, the huge pressures inside the reactor are, well, they open up the valves and the radioactive gases shoot out. It's during that time that we think that the people downwind are exposed to high levels of radioactivity, i.e. high radiation doses. And that phenomenon, in other words, that time signature of instead of having 
even little bits of uh, emissions throughout the 365 days. Now, you don't have that. You have one big massive spike, which happens over about a day and a half period. And that happens, roughly speaking, about once a year, when the fuel rounds are taken out, the old ones, and uh, the new ones are put in. So that's important, very, very important, because it results in doses which are at least 20 times higher, maybe even as much as 100 times higher. I discussed this in my article. So that, that's a major worry, and that's, that's something that's going to have to be addressed by both the US EPA and also the National Research Council in its future studies. They're going to have to address this big spike in emissions each year from every reactor. That's stunning because, of course, by averaging out over a year, it seems yes. like it would be a much lower thing. Dose. You wouldn't have to worry about it. It wouldn't be a dose that would be damaging, low level, blah, blah, blah. But what you're saying is that the majority of that happens at a predictable time when the fuel rods are being switched out and there is no notice, no awareness, no sirens going off, no protection, no awareness. Correct. Indeed, I've said to a number of nuclear operators, look, why don't you do this at nighttime when people are in bed? Mm -hmm. Why don't you do it when it's really, really windy out uh, and it's not raining? And the rain brings the radio clouds back to earth. When, but when it's windy, you get massive dispersion. But if it's very calm, then it just drifts everywhere, and you get big doses. No response. Libby, there's one other thing I'd like, a little story I'd like to tell you, which might interest your readers. This time pattern, these spikes, have been hidden from us ever since the beginning of the nuclear power program back in the 19. 19- 50s, or late 50s, early 60s. Nobody knew about them, apart from the people who worked in the nuclear industry, and they kept really quiet about it. What happened was that some German scientists who were anti-nuclear began to suspect that there was something funny going on here. So, back in 2012, when the regional government of Baden-Württemberg became red-green, by red-green I mean it was governed by a coalition of socialist and green parties, rather than the, how shall I say, the, the Christian Democrats who are sort of more conservative in their views. The first thing they did was this, this German red-green coalition, um, was that they demanded their nuclear regulatory give them data, give the minister, the energy minister, data on the half-hourly emissions from the nuclear power plants in their area in Baden-Württemberg. This is intriguing. The energy minister was a woman. I'm afraid I've forgotten her name. And I haven't got it written down, but she was a very powerful and determined lady. And the head of the region's uh, nuclear regulatory commission refused to give the information and said, no, we don't have it. But from an insider, we knew that they did have it. And so the German energy minister said, you will put this data on my desk on Monday morning, or you will be fired. And he said, I don't believe you. She said, right, I want on my desk on Friday afternoon 
your resignation letter undated. And he had to bring his letter, resignation letter, undated, and she put it in the drawer and said, right, if I don't get this information on Monday morning, I am putting a date on this letter. That's what she did. And in other words, she was playing hardball. Um, we got the data. But the trouble is that the data was presented in a computer program form format that we, nobody had apart from the nuclear industry. So we demanded um, the data in a sort of user-friendly form, and they said, no, you asked for the data, you got it. We're not helping you anymore. And she was about to sack the regulator when some people in the Green Party who were computer wizards said, look, we can put this, this data into a computer program, shall we call it A, and then transfer that to a computer program B, and then transfer it to Microsoft Excel. And once we get it into Excel, we can read off the data. It took them about three days to do it, but they got it. <laughs> I love it. And then we got the data, and for the first time we saw what was happening, a massive spike, a thousand times higher in terms of concentration than the normal amount. In other words, instead of three becquerels per cubic meter, we're finding 3,000 becquerels per cubic meter. In other words, a thousand-fold increase. And then we knew what was going on, and then we knew, because it had tried, they had hit this since the start of the nuclear power program. Well, that's like 50 years ago. They've hidden this, and it went to great lengths to prevent us from getting the information. And now we've got it. Now, what I'd like to say to your American listeners is, this is very important. You have to go to your regulators and say, there's no reason why this is not occurring also in UK and US reactors. These data are from pressurized water reactors, like in Dremigen, in uh, Baden-Württemberg, in Germany. And so we know that it's very, very likely the same is happening with U.S. reactors. So what are you going to do about it? That's the wake-up call that I'd like to issue to your uh, listeners, and I hope that uh, at least some of you, some of your listeners, will pick this up and say, whoa, we've got to do something here. It's a powerful piece of information. And yeah. the fact that they knew, that the industry knew about these spikes and went to such great lengths to hide it means that they understood exactly how devastating that information would be to yes. their business and their financial futures. So, of course, they would do everything in their power to hide it. And good for those people in Germany and that environmental minister and you for getting this information, putting it in a usable form so that we have the opportunity to now use this as a very important piece of weaponry, as it were, on behalf of getting these things shut down and taken care of. So if someone hears this interview or reads your article and realizes that they are living in proximity to a nuclear reactor and they either have or they want to have children, what would you recommend that they do? I've already done this in Canada, in fact, where they've got... Uh, nuclear reactors, you wouldn't believe, in uh, metropolitan Toronto. It's absolutely crazy. I'm Canadian, so I don't have any joy in saying 
what I say, but the Ontario government really has got to get a grip of this. And I have said in guidance to Greenpeace Canada that women of childbearing age who wish uh, or intend to have families, or even if they've got young ones, or if they're already pregnant, they shouldn't live within 10 kilometers of a reactor. And that people who already live near nuclear reactors and have gardens, they shouldn't eat their own produce if they live within five kilometers. And I've actually given that evidence, and it's published on my website in evidence to Greenpeace Canada. So my advice to this would be to young women who are living in the shadow of nuclear reactors is don't do it. Ian, if people wish to download a complete copy of your article, how could they do that? Difficult. It's behind a very stiff paywall. Um, my guidance to people who need a full copy for research purposes would be to contact me, and it's permissible under the copyright laws to send individual copies to scientific researchers. You can do that. What is not permissible is for somebody to get a copy, then immediately uh, send it around to hundreds of other people. That is not allowed, I'm afraid, under our present copyright arrangements. Um, for those people who are not scientific researchers, my guidance to them would be, do they know anybody who works as a scientist in a, an academic institution, a university in the United States? Or do they live near a big national library, either in Washington, D.C., or New York, or L.A., or near the Lawrence Livermore Laboratories, or the Berkeley Laboratories, or any of the National Research Institutes? Because they will have copies of these journals, and they will have a copy of the Journal of Environmental Radioactivity online. Uh, so if they have any friends in universities at all, they will be able to, to, to get them ask them to download for them. It's not ideal. The present paywall arrangements are unfortunate. Um, but it's how the large publishing companies make their living. So that's my best guidance. Ian, anything you would like to add at this point that we haven't covered? I haven't mentioned the name of the organization in Germany which got the data of the emission spikes. It's called IPPNW, and that stands for International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, IPPNW. They're a, a, a large international organization based, their headquarters are in Boston, in Massachusetts. They're a good organization. My hats go off to IPPNW because they were the people that got the data. And IPPNW also provided me with Dr. Alex Rosen, who yes. in Nuclear Hot Seat number 161, I had the opportunity yes. to interview him about the UNSCIR report, 
which yeah. he took apart point by point. It has gone viral. It has been picked up by e News and elsewhere and has become one of the most important interviews that I have done. This one ranks up there as well because right. what you're providing us is with the hardcore scientific evidence that we can use to say we're not a bunch of emotional tree-hugging environmentalists. <laughs> Though we may be in our spare time, but we also have the data to back up what it Absolutely. is that we are saying. Now, okay. study provides a lot of ammunition. It really does. And try and get a hold of it. And uh, if there are people who desperately who really do need to have this, for example, they have children who live very close to a nuclear reactor, I will send them the, the article, I will, so that they can use it to obtain some sort of redress. I have given evidence in Canada to various public hearings, uh, governmental inquiries and stuff like that. And I'm quite prepared to do that in the United States. Here I am, ready, willing and able to help out in any way that I can. There's two struggles now. One is the National Research Council study, and secondly is the US EPA proposals to weaken uh, the safety limits. Ian, thank you so much for sharing your time and your expertise with the listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you, Libby. It's a pleasure from mine, and uh, best wishes to all the uh, campaigners uh, who are opposing the nuclear juggernaut, as you say, in the United States. And I'd like to say to you, too, uh, well done, and uh, I hope that uh, we can certainly keep in touch. Dr. Ian Fairley. You can find a link to his article on the study of childhood leukemia rates in proximity to nuclear reactors on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 588. You can also follow him on his blog at infairly.org, and that's F as in Frank, A-I-R-L-I-E. Just click on the News and Comments tab. And we'll also have a link to the listings of boiling water reactors around the world so you can see if you live near one or more than one. Activists, activists, shout out, shout out, shout out. Many of us who engage in conversations with others about the dangers of nuclear have to face the accusation well, you would deprive the world then of radioactive isotopes that are used in medicine for healing, for good. Well, to counter that, a new fact sheet has been created by the Canadian Coalition for Nuclear Responsibility, written by the esteemed Gordon Edwards. It's entitled Medicine and Nuclear Power, and it starts, Modern medicine does not depend on nuclear power. All electricity-producing reactors could be shut down permanently with little or no impact on best medical practices. Hospitals do not need nuclear power and never have. Any isotopes, meaning radioactive materials, that are considered medically required can be produced by accelerators or small research reactors. Medical procedures that do not involve radioactivity are increasingly preferred. We will have a link up to the PDF on medicine and nuclear power on our website, NuclearHotSeat.com, under this episode, number 588. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, September 27, 2022. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from 
nuclear-news.net or the website that's standing in for it while problems with the URL are being sorted out, deunrenard.wordpress.com, beyondnuclear.org, nears.org, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons or ICANW.org, the International Atomic Energy Agency, Coalition Against Nukes, counterpunch.org, monarchpartnership.co.uk, hollywoodreporter.com, huffpost.com, theguardian.com, truthout.org, voanews.com, reuters.com, Ed Lyman of the Union of Concerned Scientists, and Dr. Paul Dorfman, both of whom you deserve to be following on Twitter, mlive.com, nukewatch.org, climatecrocs.com, vcstar.com, sandiegotribune.com, mainichi.jp, tokyo-np.co.jp, arirang.com, kbs.co.kr, yahoo.com, taiwannews.com, japantimes.co.jp, independent.co.uk, express.co.uk, msn.com, ft.com, and the captured and compromised by the industry they're supposed to be regulating, Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Our thanks, as always, to Linda Pence-Gunter of Beyond Nuclear for her weekly Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story. If you'd like to get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered via email every week, we make it so easy. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com, scroll down for the yellow box, put in your first name and an email address, and every week, once a week, you'll get one email with a link to that week's show and a short description of the content. Or, if you prefer, sign up for it on your favorite podcast channel. Either way, you will never have to miss another episode of Nuclear Hot Seat, ever. Now... We need your help to know what's going on on the ground level around you when it comes to nukes. So if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And remember, if you can go to Nuclear Hot Seat and donate, we really need your help. Anything you can do, we appreciate the support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2022. Libby Halevi and Heartistry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution is provided, which means you cite the program, the website, and if you can, anyone whose comments you use. This is Libby Halevi, producer and host of Nuclear Hot Seat, reminding you that as UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres said on Monday's International Day for the total elimination of nuclear weapons, Eliminating nuclear weapons would be the greatest gift we could bestow on future generations. There you've got it. This has been your weekly nuclear wake-up call. So whatever you do, do not go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.